When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to ghosts and government cover-ups, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. And ladies and gentlemen, you know what that music means. Welcome to the show. I'm Ben. And I'm Noel, the Necro Goat Slaughterer Brown. Oh, that is good. We should do some. Uh, we should do some black metal nicknames. You know, I feel like I'm hogging the nickname uh, giving duties so often. Do you have a black metal nickname for me, Noel? Man, it was everything I could do to come up with that one. Neither that was, was a good so one. It was kind of redundant. It's a Necro Goat uh-huh. Slaughterer. So yeah. is it is it itself? Does it only slaughter Necro Goats, or is it a Necro Goat? That slaughters. Right, yeah. It's not clear. But you know what? Right. A little ambiguity in uh, in black metal is probably just fine. Ben, I'm going to call you. I'm going to take a cue from the uh, Swedish black metal band Hellhammer. And I'm going to call you Ben Satanic Slaughter Bolin. You know, I, I'll deal with that. I like the nested alliteration. Hellhammer uh, was a was a member of a band, right? A member of a band, but also a a Swedish uh, black metal band uh, that was maybe active. No, they were active in the early '80s, um, and we'll get to that part of the story very soon as a way of uh, segueing into mm. what today's topic is, which is music and the occult. 
That's right. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're here. Most importantly, you're here. It's what we call the most wonderful time of the year over at Conspiracy Stuff. That is the countdown to Halloween. We are in the month of October. And uh, stay tuned for the end because we have a little bit of administrative business to cover. But first, uh, we're going to delve into something that a lot of people have asked us about. Noel, this was uh, this was an idea that you came to us with, right? Yeah, I, mean, I just think it's there's a lot there to unpack, and there's a lot of um, opportunity, you know, to dig into some pretty interesting stuff when it comes to music and the occult. Um, not only with things like black metal and mm-hmm. uh, Satanism, but just uh, numerology and uh, Illuminati symbology embedded in different works and um, uh, you know popular culture um, references throughout um, the history of, mm-hmm. uh, of rock music. You know, so. <laughs> Yes, and it goes past rock music, which is something we're going to discover. So here, let's let's just paint the background a little bit, right? Uh, first things first, the music industry is, uh, surprise, a huge business, gargantuan. Uh, global recorded music sales totaled $15 billion in 2014. And that's even with, you know, the the fall of paid media and more people just finding songs they'd rather listen to for free on a streaming service, right? For sure. Either way you cut it, it's a Leviathan business-wise. And that's because music is one of the few things that unites all human beings regardless of background. One of my favorite writers, uh, Vladimir uh, Nabokov, or Nabokov uh, is one of the only people I ever heard of who just categorically didn't like music. He had synesthesia, and he didn't get music. He said it was just this collection of noises to him. So other than one author who passed away a long time ago, pretty much everybody digs some sort of music. It occupies a unique niche in the human experience, and it appears, fun fact, to predate the written word, making the practice of music literally older than recorded history. So today we're going to talk about music, but you know what sort of show this is, folks. And, uh, you know, our favorite holiday is coming up, so we're not just going to talk about the music industry or a few instances of conspiracy. No. And when we explore the entire concept of the relationship between music and the occult, there's one place we always have to start, right? Absolutely. And that is with the devil, Satan, Lucifer. Lucifer. Old Scratch. I like mm-hmm. that one. Yeah, That's Old Scratch. One. How about uh, The Devil Went Down to Georgia? Do you remember that song? Of course, yeah. The Devil Went Down to Georgia. He was looking, looking for, for Soul of Steel. Steel. Yeah. And I know he played a golden fiddle, mm-hmm. and, he, and he gets into a fiddle-off with uh, Johnny. Is it Johnny? Is Johnny. The protagonist Johnny the and the Devil. Johnny yeah. rising up your wall and playing a fiddle hard. in Georgia, and the Devil deals in cards. Yeah. Yeah, and if you if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But, but if, if you, you lose, lose, the devil gets your soul. So, Definitely yeah. a callback to uh, one of the early um, rock myths uh, with with uh, Satan, which mm-hmm. is the Robert Johnson story. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, bit, yeah, yeah. Let's talk a let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, this is something that you and I were talking about off air because you found a fantastic source for some of this, right? I did. It's a book called Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll by a guy named Peter Berbigal. Mm-hmm. Pronounce it like that. Um, and it basically just is like kind of an oral history of uh, as far back um, as 
like the blues and Elvis and things mm. like that about how just the connections between um, this idea of like selling your soul to the devil at the crossroads, you know, in order ah. to gain uh, the ability to write amazing songs and perform amazing music. And you know, back to the whole devil went down to Georgia theme. That is definitely where this comes from, which is the story of Robert Johnson, who was a very, very well regarded uh, blues singer and guitarist, right, right. largely credited um, for inventing many of the sounds mm. and, um, you know, constructs that went on to uh, be very important for much of popular music, especially, sure. you know, things like rock music. Right, yeah, and, and had relatively few recorded songs, but he did also have a song about going to the crossroads. He exactly. actually has a song about it. But this is also tropes or themes or versions of another story, you know, that one would go to the crossroads or through certain arcane preparations, strike a deal with dark powers. Sure, it's like that Faust story, the Faustian exactly. bargain, you know, as, as they say. Mm-hmm. You know, you're basically exchanging your humanity for some boon that the devil, you know, which ultimately serves as a stand-in for any any number of other malevolent dark forces. Sure. Um, from yeah. whether it's voodoo culture or paganism or anything like that, um, it's it's certainly a part of a trope in all of those, uh, you know, mythologies, I guess you could call them. Right, yeah, yeah. The, we've talked about this on the show before, the idea of religious syncretism, that one religion or another will attempt to meld together to win over the people. So the idea that you mentioned there is brilliant, Noel. The Satan, the Abrahamic Satan, is a stand-in often for older gods or spirits in these stories. Trafficking with supernatural creatures for material gain is is a very is a very old idea and you know we often see that we talked about that in our other video, Five Things You Didn't Know About Satan. Listeners, of course, if you're checking out this show right now, then you already know that the trident and the goat legs are examples of this kind of religious syncretism, uh, trying to vilify pre-existing gods. Uh, but here's an interesting thing. In Abrahamic tradition, Lucifer was known as the angel of music before he fell from God's grace, or that's what you'll hear a lot of people say. And so this devil, this Promethean figure has been associated with music and musicians in a number of ways. There's, there's another, there's another case of someone who was alleged to sell their soul to the devil, and that was Niccolo Paganini. Uh, this, this guy, a violinist, right? By all accounts, just the best there ever was at the time, you know, mm-hmm. just incredibly fast, incredibly proficient, just insane technique. Uh, I actually grew up playing violin, so I um, was, was aware of, of him and kind of the, the shadow that he cast on the on the history of, of uh, performing. So um, it's it makes sense that that he would have gotten uh, cast as one of these figures that made some sort of Faustian bargain in order to get those mad violin skills. So yeah, he sold his soul. He made a pact with the devil. And for those of you who are interested, I will say, uh, I, I, I guess I wouldn't recommend trying some kind of nefarious magic, but if you're looking for, a way to do it, uh, you can find things like the, uh, lesser key of Solomon. That's a, that's a grimoire 
or the uh, Malus Maleficarum, which uh, talks about some anecdotal ideas of pacts with Satan. So it gets pretty complex pretty quickly because, you know, calling the big one up is not necessarily recommended. You get, there are other lesser people you could work with, you know? Sure. So apparently there is a specific month or day of the week or hour to call these other demons and invoke some sort of pact. So it's buyer's market. If you want to uh, sell your soul, I'm sure you are just several fascinating Google searches away from yeah. getting on the trail. But because of i think because of this pre-linguistic mystical nature uh, of music in the human experience that it makes sense for us to see it associated with this idea of a a magical thing well i mean I, it actually brought to mind something that you said to me yesterday when we were hanging out off air um a friend of yours you said who was into practicing magic um had a really interesting way of describing what magic was i think he uh, said yeah. he used the phrase weaponized psychology is that yeah is that correct absolutely yeah and i feel like music has some of that to it as well because it's it's this whole package that combines something like a melody which can invoke uh certain responses emotionally just by nature mm-hmm. of what the melody sounds like with a lyrical content which can invoke many different things whether it be nostalgia whether it be some sort of uh longing or or some kind of you know um emotional right. response and to me that is a form of you know if you look at it this way weaponized psychology where you are eliciting a certain response from someone by combining these elements and it is this sort of ritualistic thing whether it's putting on a record or going to a concert Concerts, you know, you are participating in this invocation, let's say. Yeah, there's, there's a, there is a certain strange thing to it, right? I'm like, why do minor chords make people feel sad? Mm-hmm. Yes. And with that in mind, we're going to go to the next part of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to discuss some conspiracies, both theories and facts surrounding music and the occult. In other words, here's where it gets crazy. One of the first um, connections here we'd like to discuss is the uh, the connection between metal like mm-hmm. heavy metal and Satan, um, uh, you know, as far yeah. back as, <laughs> as, you know, Black Sabbath, for example, you know, just the name Black mm-hmm. Sabbath carries this weight of demonic, you know, worship of some kind. It's the idea of taking a holy day and making it, you know, shrouding it in darkness of some kind. You know? Which is weird because didn't Black Sabbath begin as a blues band? I, I'm not 100% so. sure. It would make sense. They definitely have some blues uh, qualities in their music as mm-hmm. far as the riffs. And, and mm-hmm. again, you know, a lot of metal is based in this idea of, of guitar riffs and playing right. these little uh, motifs that mm-hmm. um, kind of repeat. And uh, obviously you can get into different um, genres that, that uh, take that in various different directions. But um, at its heart, metal is a guitar driven um you know genre of music mm-hmm. um 
So one of the most uh, infamous genres of metal uh, that has uh, come out of that scene is uh, something called black metal. Ah, which, black metal. Yeah, black metal. Um, and I remember first hearing about black metal when I was much younger. There was a, I had a subscription to Spin Magazine, mm. and there was an issue that had all of these different figures from Norwegian black metal um, in this uh, this profile or whatever. Mm. And I, I can't remember their names, but they were all fantastic. Uh, well, I'll give you just some examples. All the names like... Like uh, Emperor. Exactly. Well, the, the names of the bands, sure, like Emperor, but the Hates individuals. Oh, yeah. The yeah. individuals who are in the bands um, all have. This is what this is from a band we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the band Hellhammer, which uh, again not the same Hellhammer as uh, one of the characters we're about to discuss in right. this uh, story, but names uh, like. Uh, Satanic Slaughter, which is the nickname I gave Ben. Oh, uh, um, thank you. Slade Necros. These are members of the band. Satanic Slaughter was the uh, guitarist and lead vocalist. Uh, Slade Necros, bass and backing vocals. Denial Fiend on drums. Uh, Savage Damage on bass and vocals. Evoked Damnator on bass. Mm-hmm. Grim Decapitator on bass. And these are all previous members. And Del Infernali on guitar. Do you think any of them are listening to the show? I hope not. You don't, you don't want them to? I'd be, I'd be scared. Really? Yeah. Anyway, my point is though, when I saw this uh, profile in Spin, I remember there was one guy who talked about carrying around a decapitated raven's head in a satchel that he uh, would yes. sniff, you know, like before he went on stage Dead. to like, get the sense yeah. of death in his nostrils. And, you know, anyway, so uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that was my first exposure to this black metal. And I think, you know, there's, there's definitely different camps, but the main ones that we think about are the ones from Norway uh, mm-hmm. and the ones from Sweden. Right. So the, the interesting thing here is that so much of entertainment is is just showmanship. That. Yeah, yeah, showmanship exactly. So we're all familiar perhaps with uh, with different organizations that will put on a spectacle, but then go home, have a nice cup of Earl Grey. And then, uh, I don't know, ask the kids about their day before going to sleep at 1135 sharp. So there's a there's an important distinction to make between what what is smoke and mirror and what is actually happening. I I despise. We're going to talk about this in a little more detail in a second, but I despise the, uh, I guess the the laziness or the lack of critical thinking when people paint with such a broad brush and say. Oh, uh, all black metal, all people involved in black metal are these lunatic cannibal necro goat slaughterers, mm-hmm. right? To use sure. your nickname, because it's is simply not true. But there is something we can talk about, which was seen as an occult link by many opponents, and that is the prevalence of church burnings. In the Norwegian black metal scene alone, there were over 50 arsons of Christian churches from 92 to 96. So what this shows us is that it was at least in vogue for people who believed that members of the black metal scene in Norway were practicing Satanist or something. This was considered the smoking gun or not to be crass, but the smoking church. Sure. And the, problem with that is that people who are doing that or people who were not opposed to it would say this is not about Satanism. This is about the opposition of Christian religion. Absolutely. 
Still, you're burning buildings. Yeah, this sort of comes back to this idea that we were beginning to touch on of appearance versus action. So, right. for example, like Ozzy Osbourne, yeah, sure, he may have snorted a line of ants in the heyday of his drug haze, but it certainly wasn't uh, in, in tribute to the Dark Lord, you know. And, I mean, maybe they dabbled, you know, Black Sabbath dabbled in some ideas of occult teachings, but they certainly are not thought to have been a satanic band, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Whereas, or, or like another example is like... Alice Cooper, you know, a lot of a lot of costumes, a lot of set pieces, you know, a lot of uh, kind of horror, uh, Grand Guignon kind of um, showmanship. And you could say the same about even Kiss, for instance. Kiss, yeah, to a much lesser degree. I mean, Kiss to me has always just been absurd, and there's not really anything scary about what they're doing. Um, But uh, like uh, Alice Cooper or even a Marilyn Manson, you know, and I mean, Manson, Manson did it profess to be a follower of Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan and things like that. But I think a lot of that was just sort of like a a, 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 a a way to rebel against some of what we're talking about, like these Judeo-Christian kind of beliefs. Sure, and, and Anton LaVey, or the, the philosophy of the Church of Satan is not necessarily the deistic Satanism that... Right. that people might think of if they are. It's a symbol, more Christian. or less, of, yeah. of rebellion and of what is it, do what thou wilt, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like just basically don't follow anyone's rules but your own. It's it's a very kind of hedonistic, um, ultimately kind of a selfish uh, way of life. Which know? they would say is not really problematic. I would say it's ironic, though, if uh, if you're reading, like any religion that says, do what you want whenever you do what you want and here are the rules for how you do what you want. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. 
how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentleys all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because uh, is that yeah, what you want to do? I, I, there's yeah. just a cognitive dissonance. But anyhow, I, I'm not knocking the uh, Church of Satan. I am pointing out that a lot of people probably misinterpret its philosophy. But while we're here, Noel, with Marilyn Manson, let's let's follow this. Let's yeah. go a little bit down the rabbit hole because the group, uh, which I guess began as Marilyn Manson and the Spooky Kids. Sure had the idea of taking the name of a famous beauty queen or actress, mm-hmm. right? Some sort of Hollywood icon, you know. Right. And combining it with the surname of a serial killer. Right. So we have uh things like what uh we have Marilyn Manson, Twiggy Ramirez. Yeah, Twiggy it? Ramirez, there was Gidget Gain, um, uh, which was Ed Gain, uh, the surname, and Gidget, um, as far as I can tell, is, is a reference to a, uh, a, a film from 1959 from Columbia mm-hmm. Pictures, uh, starring, uh, Sandra D, Cliff Robertson, and James Darren, sort of like a, you know, it looks like a very quintessentially Hollywood type film from the time. Right. And then there's, uh, there's Daisy Berkowitz. Mm-hmm. The, these, these names, you see the pattern, but let's focus on Marilyn Manson's mm-hmm. name in specific, because that's Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. and Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. So and Charles Manson is uh, himself, Manson, Manson family are at the crux of several other interconnecting theories, right? And he was in the musical underground of California for a while too. I think he was way underground. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I think he he had he seemed to he was a very charismatic dude and was able to kind of curry favor and like kind of become friends and get into the inside circle with some relatively famous musicians like for example like he kind of knew forget which beach boy he spent time with, but it was definitely one of them. Um and he was trying to kind of 
you know, cheat his way into the music industry, more or less. Mm -hmm. He was not a particularly talented songwriter. Uh, I actually, at one point years ago, had a uh, a copy of uh, just a compilation of all of his songs, and they're they're very bad. It's not it's it's not. There's nothing particularly engaging or commercial. There's nothing particularly uh, sellable about any of this music, and it's it's borderline unlistenable unless you are able to just do it kind of as an artifact of here's what Charles Manson sounds like playing acoustic guitar as like a historical oddity <laughs> exactly. of some sort. Yeah. But so, okay, this, you know, it's interesting that you say that because let's, let's explore some of the other aspects of Manson's rise and fall mm. while he was incarcerated as he was for most of his life. I think the technically now the majority of his life, he's been locked away one place or another. Mm. He, was exposed to uh, some of the principles and techniques of something called Dianetics, mm-hmm. which would become later Scientology, sure. as a precursor for that. He also uh, had his own brand of uh, cult creation, and we studied him fairly extensively when we were looking at the, we did a video, Matt and I did a video about how cults work. And how, you know, how one erases the ego, removes the ability to think critically or proactively, you know, and turns people really into limbs of a larger body rather than their own, their own person. And one thing that's, that's strange about this is that this ties into what are often considered occult techniques. And the, the word occult, just to be, just to be clear, is often treated with a magical context here in the states and in our modern day, but, um, it also, the, the base of it really means hidden, you know? So I would say that the techniques Manson was thought of using, right? Or people who believe that he was exercising something like mesmerism or hypnosis, mm-hmm. which he was, uh, that would be seen as a hidden skill, mm-hmm. an occult approach. And it worked. He had people brainwashed, had them out in the desert, convinced that the, there was going to be a race war that would take over the entire world. They were going to live in a secret cave. Yeah. Helter Skelter. Yes, sir. Helter Skelter. Uh, culminating, of course, in some murders. Yeah. And this, you know, I know we're kind of jumping all over the place with this, but this is just, it's, it's fascinating and it's easy to, there's a lot of rabbit holes to go down. Mm -hmm. So you'll have to forgive us if we go a little bit out of order on some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, so, uh, there was a series of murders that the Manson family perpetrated and Mm -hmm. there's, there's another connection with some of these, uh, back to some of the other things we're talking about. Um, the first set was, uh, the Sharon Tate house. It was, uh, Roman Polanski, the director who did Rosemary's baby. Um, he did Chinatown's one of my Mm -hmm. favorites and more recently, um, he did like uh, the pianist and the ninth gate with Johnny Depp, and he continues to work. Very controversial figure in his own right, but that's for another day. So the Manson and his followers, who I believe were mostly women, yes, um, they broke into this house and they murdered Tate and um, uh, her entourage. I guess she had she was having a party or had some friends over at the time. Polanski was not there; he was out of town. Um, it's actually a really excellent, just sort of a side topic, um, a book by an author named Jersey Kaczynski. Um, called Blind Date, um, and, and Jersey Kaczynski wrote uh, the book Being There, which is a fan- was made into a fantastic film starring Peter Sellers. But in Blind Date, um, he actually 
was friends with Roman Polanski and was supposed to be at this house when these murders happened. And he writes sort of a fictionalized account of how he uh, managed to not be there and what mm-hmm. ended up happening and sort of the aftermath of it. But he doesn't really write it like as a first person, like from his own perspective. So it's very interesting. If you want to learn more about it, that's a good, good place to start. So the next night, um, Manson felt like the they had not done the best Job right. at the, the the Tate House, so they wanted to give it another go, I guess. So they went to the home of a supermarket executive named Lino LaBianca, um, where he and his wife Rosemary, who owned a dress shop, uh, lives. It was in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, and it was during this uh, kind of killing spree that Manson and his uh, followers would. Um, cover the walls in different phrases that later became iconic, mm-hmm. like Helter Skelter and Death to the Pigs and um, this idea of him trying to start a race war, Rise. And Helter Skelter is obviously a, a reference to the Beatles song Helter Skelter off of the White Album. Right, and there's another connection. Uh, two interesting side notes before we go on. There are more suspected murders on part of Manson and the Manson family out there in the desert. And people aren't sure who else got caught, who was killed in Los Angeles and just not associated with it. Helter Skelter could have been much worse. In fact, one of the reasons it wasn't is because a guy of a guy who doesn't get enough credit in the story, a fellow named Paul Crockett, a retired prospector who had also studied, oddly enough, Scientology and apparently began to deprogram some of the people. Paul's, uh, some of the people in the Manson family. Paul Crockett's story is mysterious to me. I invite you listeners to look it up and let me know what you think. Uh, we covered it briefly in one of our earlier videos, but there's, there's a lot more to that story that remains untold. And, uh, you know, I feel like we're, we might be getting closer to falling into a Charles Manson podcast. You know? I know it's, it's some really interesting stuff there for sure. Um, one a little side note and mm. kind of bringing it back to the, the music thing that we definitely went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. Um, the LaBianca mansion, uh, actually the Tate mansion was, was demolished. Uh, I'm not quite sure how long ago, but it's been some years. The LaBianca mansion still stands and has had some renovations done, but, um, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails actually uh-huh. rented that mansion in order to make uh, their uh, iconic record, The Downward Spiral. Um, and he was fascinated by, you know, the the Manson mythology and all of that as well. Um, and so, I mean, it just kind of comes back to this connection with music and the occult and, you know, uh, true believers versus, you know, showmen. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think... There is some shock value in being sort of like a fringe, like sort of a, a dark, um, musician, a dark artist, kind of sure. like, uh, like Nine Inch Nails, uh, kind of has like a sort of a sinister, kind of a creepy vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And like saying we made our record in the house where the Manson murders happened. And you know what this reminds me of, Noel, is a story that inspired a uh, part of this podcast, which you had told me originally off air and I had no idea about this. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to explore this Manson connection, what this made me think of is this story about uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, musicians of all times, David Bowie. 
And in the mid-70s, Bowie was deep in his thin white Duke phase. And anyone who knows about Bowie uh, would recognize the look of, of David Bowie during this period easily. Super thin, very pale. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was just off the rails on uh, cocaine at the time. But during this period, he actually lived in a mansion that was just down the road from the LaBianca house, which is where that second set, um, arguably the more grisly uh, set of, of Manson murders took place. And during this period, and a lot of this is, uh, this is from the book that I mentioned earlier, uh, which is called um, How uh, the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. Definitely worth checking out. You can get it as an ebook on Amazon. Um, during this period, he had just completely lost himself to this cocaine addiction. And I mean, you're David Bowie. He was just obscenely famous at this point. You know, he could sure. get whatever he wanted. He had this mansion. He was probably not leaving very often, just getting piles of cocaine delivered to him. And he started worrying about, uh, things like the, like Nazi conspiracies, the Manson murders, um, you know, his own bodily essences and bodily fluids and what that meant, you know, like sort of like, uh, that character in, um, Dr. Strangelove, who's always talking about uh, his precious, precious bodily fluids, right? You know? Definitely a, a lot of paranoia going on there. Um, and, he became convinced that because of the proximity to the LaBianca house, there were malevolent spirits that were invading his world, whether it was his, his home, his psyche, you know, all over the place. So he decided um, to seek the help of uh, what we would refer to as a white witch. A follower of the right hand path. Exactly. So the house that uh, Bowie was renting belonged to a guy named Glenn Hughes, who was um, the basis for the band Deep Purple, Smoke on the Water, and things like that. And this is a quote from a guy named Mark Spitz, who wrote uh, a Bowie biography. Um, I don't know if it was particularly sanctioned, but it definitely exists. He was, <laughs> he was around during these days, and the author of Season of the Witch did use him as a, as a source on several occasions. So here's a quote from uh, him describing... Um, what Hughes thought about David's David Bowie's situation. Fine. Quote, he felt inclined to go on very bizarre tangents about Aleister Crowley or the Nazis or numerals a lot. He was completely wired, maniacally wired. I could not keep up with him. He was on the edge all the time of paranoia and also going on about things I had no friggin' idea of what he was talking about. He'd go into a rap on it and I wouldn't know what he was talking about. And then as Bowie himself remembered in this, uh, in this, from this book, my other fascination was with the Nazis and their search for the Holy Grail. I paid with the worst manic depression of my life. My psyche went through the roof. It just fractured into pieces. I was hallucinating 24 hours a day. I felt like I'd fallen into the bowels of the earth. So it was during this period uh, for David Bowie that he reached out to someone named Cherry Vanilla, who was one of uh, a former employee of Bowie's management company, who had been around and witnessed much of his debauchery and uh, paranoia. And she was the one who put him in touch with uh, this white witch named Wally Elmlark. 
And the idea was that Elmlark would come into this mansion in Los Feliz and exercise the place, um, whether it was, uh, you know, saging it and just kind of like performing some rituals to clear it of evil spirits. And saging it would be when you burn sage around different areas of a place, right? Exactly. So, Noel, I, I have to ask something that's probably on the mind of at least a few listeners here. Do you think there were evil spirits on the premises? Well, uh, to quote Dave Chappelle doing Rick James, cocaine's a hell of a drug. That's, yeah, that's what I, I to quote Rick James doing Rick James. Yeah. Cocaine's a hell of a drug, apparently. Yeah. And I mean, it does sound like Bowie was just out of his mind with paranoia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you get that way and you, and you feel like you can't trust anybody, you see devils at every turn, you know? Um, you know, there is an account, uh, just to wrap this, this little story yeah. up, which I think is, is, is fun. Um, just, I don't know, not fun. I mean, definitely the guy was in, in a very, very dark place. He was in a very dark place. And for someone to be able to offer him some sort of help, whether it was BS or not, can't really fault him well, too he, much. He's okay now. No, he's definitely okay. I, yeah. Shockingly okay. Look at the guy. He looks like he's 20 years old. It's bizarre. <laughs> um, so, you know, this Wally Elmlark character did end up coming into the house and she, uh, you know, apparently, according to those present, successfully exercised the swimming pool. That was the first thing she wanted to do that he, that yeah. he wanted to do was exercise the swimming pool. And, um, this is a quote from, uh, backstage passes life on the wild side with David Bowie, which is a memoir by Angie Bowie, who was David's wife during this period. And she says, quote, at a certain point in the ritual, the pool began to bubble. It bubbled vigorously, perhaps thrashed is a better term in a manner inconsistent with any explanation involving filters and the like. And then uh, Mark Spitz from earlier from this unauthorized Bowie uh, uh, memoir, I guess, um, wrote, quote, Elmlark wrote a series of spells and incantations out for Bowie in case the demons returned for a dip and remained on call for Bowie as he continued to wrestle with the forces of darkness. Wow. I'm going to say cocaine. Yeah. If I had to if yeah. I had to choose one, not to be too skeptical no. about it. But we see, okay, so we see this, we see this edge of madness yeah. intersecting with some of the, the appearance of madness, which is good for marketing, right? Sure. Um, versus just the strange, the strange situations you get into when you catapult to this unprecedented level of fame and success. But, but madness aside, Let's take a closer look at the people who, regardless of uh, drug use or anything like that, sincerely believe that they are part of an occult movement or part of a magical working. Uh, we know the allegations of some sort of demonic worship are pretty old. You know, they, they predate Bowie, of course. Of course. The, in popular music and rock music especially. Uh, for instance, the Rolling Stones have been accused of this. And or even like Led Zeppelin, the idea yeah. of like backwards masking and um, messages hidden uh, that were like embedded in the inner ring of an LP, um, for example, things like that. Right, right, exactly. And this, you know, this goes into something interesting that we can explore, the idea of the, the moral panic, right, the satanic panic. Sure. But before we do that, 
there, there are a couple other things we should talk about. There, there is evidence, as we've said, of real occult conspiracies in music. One of the biggest ones, of course, being that members of the black metal scene mm-hmm. in some Scandinavian countries did conspire to burn churches. Right. Now, as for the motivation of that, it probably isn't the same motivation behind every single church burning because there are different groups doing it. Right, and we mentioned this earlier, the idea that it was in, in, in large part um, a, an act of rebellion against, you know, the uh, the idea of sort of a, what they might perceive as an oppressive, right. puritanical, um, you know, uh, not government exactly, but just sort of like a dog hierarchy, I guess, yeah. a dogma, exactly. Yeah. So there's certainly that um, aspect of it, but... Uh, there's also this idea of being like, it's almost like a gang mentality where you have mm-hmm. to do these initiations in order to show that you're completely behind what the gang is about. Mm-hmm. It's very similar with some of these black metal groups where they're, you know, burning the churches to show their commitment, to demonstrate their commitment to these ideals. Um, and why don't you talk a little bit about what some of those ideals might be and what some of these other uh, initiations might have been. Ah, okay. These other ideals, these other initiations uh, in this I, I think initiation is a perfect word. Uh, one thing would be the assumption of a different name mm-hmm. in magical orders. It's common for someone who is initiate to take upon a new name, right? A name that is used within the order. And that also becomes a new identity uh, for other rituals that one would, one would take to show allegiance to a dark force, of course, there are things that are, you know, there are agreements, actual written down agreements. For instance, and this goes back, uh, we mentioned Faust, uh, Faustus, uh, it's based on a real person, a guy named Dr. Johann George Faust. And in the tale Dr. Faust, which is, of course, um, inspired by the actual Faust, uh, Dr. Faustus sells his soul via a document for seven years of earthly pleasures, I believe, at the end of which he's, uh, his soul is forfeit. And during the witch hunts in Europe, there were quite a few people who were accused of signing pacts with the devil, sometimes null, even with papers provided, and like the signature of the devil, which not to, you know, Far be it from me to uh, cast a shadow on their methodology in the Inquisition, but that sounds a little convenient. But when we talk about rituals and initiations, it brings us to something that is probably a story for a different time. Murders. Sure. Suicides. Absolutely. There, there are several very strange cases in the world of metal, mm-hmm. but maybe metal deserves its own episode. Yeah, I think it really does. There's a whole lot going on there, but we mentioned the band, uh, maybe we didn't, but Mayhem, um, mm-hmm. was a very popular, uh, Norwegian black metal band, um, that Ultimately, its members ended up sort of being on different ideological sides, more or less, and two of them um, got into a serious altercation that involved two of the members, Euronymous and a guy by the name of 
Varg Virkness. Ah, yes. Varg Virkness. Who also has a YouTube channel. Also if you has want a to YouTube check channel. If you, want to, if you want to, if you're interested, he uh, went to prison for a long time, but I believe he is out now. Um, murdered uh, this guy, Euronymous, who had kind of taken him under his wing in what some would argue was simply, uh, you know, an altercation between two um, folks that, that maybe didn't see eye to eye on some things. But this is an altercation that ultimately ended in uh, Euronymous receiving 23 stab wounds, two to the head, five to the neck, and 16 to the back. So, I mean, as far as ritualistic uh, murders go, you know, if if it was just a beef between two dudes, probably could have just stopped with the one. You know what I mean? Right. Once he was down. Certainly. Um, but this also goes back to my, uh, my, my previous point about this having kind of like a gang mentality or yeah, like a cult mentality, sure. which brings us to, uh, in a lot of ways, the next point on our list. Ah, yes. Ain't that fresh. Everyone wants to get down like that. Our next, uh, our next topic here is hip hop and the Illuminati. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop. Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded: The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. 
she would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, if you are listening to this show, then the odds are that you may well be one of the people over the years who have requested that we talk about the Illuminati and hip-hop, that we explore it. So what's the gist of this, Noel? So this idea that successful uh, hip-hop stars are ultimately tools of the Illuminati, which um, is a shadowy group controlling the world through various financial, political, military, and cultural means – Allegedly. Right. We have a, we have a three part YouTube series on it. We've talked at length about Adam Vyashopt and the founders, the various contradictory stories about what may or may not be the Illuminati, the different groups who consider themselves the Illuminati instead of other groups. Of course. And so, uh, you know, back to alleged things. Um, right. the alleged evidence of this connection uh, is, well, you know, you don't have to look far. You can just get on YouTube, for example, and, and find just tons of these uh, examples that show various musicians uh-huh. using symbols like sure. the all-seeing eye, for Which example. Covering, you'll see clips of one person covering one eye, and then whomever uploaded the video will say, proof, Illuminati. Right. Which proof I- is... Probably a little bit of a strong term it's here. It's a but strong term. It's interesting. There's definitely a collection of this stuff. Uh, some more ideas. Um, for a lot of folks, this belief uh, proves that the shadowy connections, rather than luck or talent, decide the success of an entertainer. Yeah, but there's a fair counterpoint here, Noel. If this stuff is supposed to be so secret, then why would somebody show these symbols, these arcane you know, secret handshakes or gestures yeah. on globally broadcasted videos know, and appearances. I mean, it goes back to a lot of the stuff we were talking about earlier with the history of rock and using some of these symbols and backwards masking and, you know, the belief versus the showmanship of it. You know, I think there's a lot to be said of uh, planting intriguing, arcane images and symbols into sure. your work. It's just, it's, it's neat. It's fun. It's fascinating. You know, people are intrigued by all kinds of things without necessarily having to be fully uh, on board with every ideological, you know, um, idea. Right. With the philosophy exactly. behind something. Exactly. It, yeah. It's, it's absolutely true. Uh, Jay-Z in some interviews, it, it makes me chuckle because I'm a, I'm a fan of Jay-Z. He's regularly said he's not part of the Illuminati mm-hmm. and he feels like he, 
has to say it. He references it in verses and stuff. And I don't know. Maybe we have some listeners who believe that there legitimately is something to this. Sure. I don't deny that there is a power behind the curtain, behind the throne, behind the scenes of the music industry mm-hmm. in probably by genre, in country, in, in and there's probably like some unseen mob boss type figure in mariachi music, you know? So hip hop's no different. So my, my question then is, is it more likely that these entertainers are, to Noel's point, seeking to capitalize on beliefs to stay edgy and in the public eye? Uh, or is there something there? Is there some nefarious group of ultimately devil worshippers behind the scenes? Mm-hmm. Because in the eighties and the nineties, America thought so. Well, I mean, you know, they say the love of money, you know, is the root of all evil. And to me, in a lot of these entertainment scenarios, money is the is the devil you don't see, you know, that like is uh, <laughs> driving all of these things. And uh, I mean, it's, it's where the tastemakers come from. The folks that that hold all the all the chips are the ones that uh, choose who you know gets the hits ultimately. And I mean, That's there true. is certainly something to be said of public opinion and people going viral and things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, largely, it's a numbers game. You know, it's like right. who's getting the resources who's who's getting all of the pr and who's who's like actually you know commanding that kind of power mhm and I, i'd like to i'd like to take a look at this this thing the satanic panic mm-hmm. that swept the us some of you may be a little too young but uh some of you may be old enough to remember this uh the the satanic panic is something that came about it's considered a a moral panic uh comparable to witch hunts for instance in Europe or the red scare with mccarthyism and the idea was that there was a vast overarching conspiracy on the part of everyone from rock musicians to heavy metal musicians to blues musicians to racy singers mm-hmm. Poison the minds and souls of children, taking them into the abyssal plane of hell before they, their time. They are the, they are kind of the low hanging fruit, honestly. They are, you know, they're very, mm-hmm. uh, very um, suggestible. No, it, I'm kidding. <laughs> it started in, right. It's, uh, it's the, um, it's people who have, uh, mental issues brought on by their advanced age. So it's pretty much preschools and nursing homes. It's where you, is where you really try to sell that heavy metal, right? Totally. Uh, but anyhow, this, so this starts in the 1970s, uh, and it's this idea that there's this vast underground network of Satanists controlling everything. Uh, it, it rose and peaked in the 80s and 90s, uh, but it's pretty much gone today. The first part of it that really launched this was a book called The Satan Seller by a guy named Mike Warnke in 1972. He was referenced as an authority on Satanism for a long, or in 1972 published it, and he was referenced as an authority until 1992 when he was exposed as a fraud. So he, uh, and then other people came in, a guy named John Todd said that he started speaking in churches saying that witches, druids, and the Illuminati were controlling world politics, media, and even, gasp, most churches, churches, churches. Uh, this led to worries about backward masking, like Noel mentioned earlier, worries that Dungeons and Dragons was a 
portal to this parallel occult world, the idea that there was satanic ritual abuse occurring in, um, in, in the, like, in the studios of musicians. And we will see that there, you know, there is proof that there were abusive situations and ritualized. There is not proof that we could find that in the case of musicians, notice I say in the case of musicians, not Hollywood overall. Sure. In the case of musicians, we don't find evidence of a vast network of abusive behavior. In the case of musicians, we don't. So the, the, the thing that happens with this is that you, you start to see politicians pick this up because it's, it's, it's essentially free votes, right? It's red meat. And, uh, it goes the, in 1985, Tipper Gore and some other people, uh, some other associated. This was the whole parental advisory people. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. The parents music resource center. Uh, they wanted to, they wanted to force the government to label records that were threatening to the hearts, minds, morals, or souls of American youth. So they had um, a succession of offensive materials, stuff like, we're not going to take it by mm-hmm. Twisted Sister. Hmm. Yeah. Sort of a bad attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very strange. And then Geraldo Rivera did a um a documentary or a Rivera piece, I guess, called Devil Worship Exposing Satan's Underground. And then of course Judas Priest went to trial for making a backwards message. Which um uh let's see. There was a line in the song Better by You, Better Than Me, when played backwards, reportedly commanded the listener to do it. Which is such a Rorschach ink blot, you know, an audio version of it. Not only that, if you've ever messed around with flipping things backwards, I mean, that, you know, the way words sound in reverse are always a little bit off. And I just, I could picture that that was not even intentional almost, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure because what, you know, here's the thing. Long story short, what did they find in these investigations? Ultimately, they didn't find a damn thing. Uh, we can talk a little bit about mental health versus music. Uh, for Okay, for instance, there's the question, when someone perpetrates an act of violence, right, and people attempt to blame it on a video game that person played or a song that they heard, right, or, you know, just a, a book they read, then... It's always seemed very short-sighted to me. Right. Even if that was the trigger, the likelihood is that it was no more than a proverbial straw sure. on a camel's back. You know, That could have been replaced by any number of things. It could have been any number Somebody of things. Somebody looking at them funny at the grocery store. I mean, you know, honestly. I just think it's more than opportunistic. It's more than convenient to blame a single thing mm-hmm. on something like that. I think it's offensive. It's offensive to the people who survived those kind of tragedies. It's offensive to the families of the victims and not to mention the, the poor schmucks who just put out an album, you know? Absolutely. Uh, so we do know that there are, you know, this has been a long episode, but we do know that there are some, uh, true and proven uh, corruption and cover-ups in music. There's the concept of payola, which mm-hmm. which you can probably speak to pretty well. 
Uh, you know, I'm not actually intimately familiar with it. I mean, I know it has to do with um, it's like the idea of the equivalent of like a lobbyist, you know, g- giving uh, gifts or taking a you know a, a lawmaker out for fancy dinners in exchange, or not necessarily exchange, but in the hopes that they will support their piece of legislation that benefits the the lobbying group, the group they represent. Uh, yeah. it's, it's it's an example of something like that where executives, I believe, pay. DJs um, mm-hmm. and, and radio station um, managers to play their songs. Right. And, and it's the, illegal. Right. It's illegal. And the FCC, uh, the FCC specifically bans it. However, it is, it's pretty common, right? Uh, the part where it becomes illegal is when the radio station plays a specific song, but doesn't disclose that they're playing it for money. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be transparent about it. So that's something that really occurs, and it is kind of a cover-up. Then, you know, the exploitation of, gosh, especially the exploitation of up-and-coming talent Mm. in the music industry is something for itself. Uh, I want to close out, though, when we're talking about behind-the-scenes things in music and the occult. I love this one. Okay. There is an article in The Atlantic, which you can read online for free, called Hit Charade, or charade yep. for our fancy listeners. And here's the thing, guys. The vast majority of pop songs that are in the top of the charts right now are written by about six people. And guess where they're from? <laughs> they're from Scandinavia. They're Boom. Norwegian. Boom. They're from Stockholm. Uh, there is one lady who was from Oklahoma, but she, uh, now she works with these other guys. Uh, and they have names like Esther Dean, Michael Erickson, Tor Hermanson, Stargate, Dr. Luke. Uh, these, these folks have written songs like Bad Blood, Hey Mama, Worth It, Can't Feel My Face, The Night Is Still Young, and so on. The main I, guy, I, though, you know, the main guy is this guy, Max Martin. Yeah. I mean, it's not just him because, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm stealing this from you, but this, the way there's a great episode of On Point with Tom Ashbrook on NPR from a few days ago where they talk about the process of this whole thing. And I was not aware of this. They basically do this stuff by committee where like yeah. they have like the guy that does the hooks. They have the guy that does, you know, the beat. They have the, I mean, but, but more so than just like a collaborative thing. It's literally like a, they pass it down the line. And the idea right. is to stuff it with so many hooks that capitalize on that, I think, 15 seconds that someone yeah. listens to the that radio changes before they every- Fifteen seconds before they change the station. Anyway, probably not necessarily a conspiracy. They're pretty open about it, but it's certainly something that the record industry kind of tried to keep under wraps. I think for a long time it was literally stuff they don't want you Mm -hmm. to know. And no, not necessarily any occult uh, occult issues going on there, but it's it's pretty fascinating stuff for sure. Wait, I hear that sound cue. Do you hear that? I do. You know what that means? I know what it means. It means that. Time for me to apologize to Pope Francis. For real, you guys. We recorded last week's episode a few days before the story dropped. The Vatican finally um, issued a statement regarding Pope Francis's supposedly secret one-on-one meeting with uh, Kim Davis, the um, Kentucky uh, clerk um, who was denying um, 
marriage licenses to gay couples. And, um, you know, there was a lot to, a lot being made of the fact that the Pope had this secret meeting and I expressed my personal disappointment because I just was so fascinated by this Pope and his, uh, more progressive, um, ways of doing things and very even handed way of speaking about, speaking about issues that popes don't typically handle. And as it turns out, this was entirely spun by Kim Davis's people. Um, what was really going on was the Pope was meeting with a group of uh, people for a very quick little handshake and a kind of a meet and greet kind of situation at this mm-hmm. this Vatican embassy, uh, um, essentially in in D.C. And um, the the only people that he actually was aware were going to be there, and I don't remember their name, but um, it was uh, a student of his from I believe he. Uh, taught at a, uh, a Catholic institution in Argentina. Isn't that where he's from? Mm-hmm. And this was a same-sex couple um, that he knew were going to be there, and he specifically expressed to his old friend or the, his student that he was excited to see him and wanted to give him a hug, and that was literally the only person that the Pope was there that he was aware was going to be there. So Kim Davis was one of about 15 or 20 or more folks that were just kind of there waiting for the Pope to pass through and hopefully have a little handshake and a, you know, a, a personal blessing. So I wow. apologize. You're, your holiness. You're a man of uh, principle. It sounds like you're a little bit bothered. I, I bothered that I was so quick to jump on the bandwagon. I felt really bad about it. After the fact, uh, I even considered adding an addendum to the episode, but I just, I figured this would be the better way to do it. You know, come clean. Well, uh, as you know, the Pope being a, a big fan of the show, mm. uh, was pretty upset. Was he? Yeah. And remember I mentioned the Snapchats that we sent. Did, and, yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, he sent some pretty, um, some, some pretty sad emoticons. Really? So, yeah. So, you know, that's how it is. Uh, sometimes you just get caught up in, in the heat of the moment. Yeah. The, f- the furor of the internet. Right. The pitchforks come yeah. out. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's interesting because that's similar to what happened in the satanic panic. You guys, we've got to go, but there's so much other stuff I wanted to get to here. There's so many other specific stories. Uh, I'm going to ask for your help specifically. Let me know what links you see between the world of music and the world of the occult. Uh, tell me if you think it's absolute bunk, it's just baloney made up, but also tell me if you think there is clear, consistent proof of, you know, some sort of hip-hop and Illuminati thing. I, I'd love to see, just because at this point, at this point, what I can say probably happens is that there are groups running different things behind the scenes, Right. We, we've said this in our Illuminati episode. There are a lot of people that want to control the world, but there there's no one at this point who controls the whole thing, not even international bankers. Uh, and they would be one of the draft picks. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so hopefully uh, tune in next week. We'll uh, have an update from Matt Frederick, who is with us in spirit. Uh, stay tuned this weekend. If you're hearing this the day it goes live, we're going to do our live show with uh, our our friend Steve, the intern. And if you'd like to check out some of the stories that don't make it to the air, find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are Conspiracy Stuff. If you have an idea for a show, 
a reaction, just want to say hello, but don't like the social media rigmarole, we of all people get it. You can email us directly. Our address is conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. more on this topic and other unexplained phenomena, visit youtube.com slash conspiracy stuff. You can also get in touch on Twitter at the handle at conspiracy stuff. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 